Okay, I've been practicing this. Good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> uh, my name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for Grace Fellowship Church. I am delighted not to say good morning to you, as I do most weeks. <clears throat> It'll drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleating for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not. When the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. That's a poem called The Silence of God by a man named Andrew Peterson that was turned into a song. And this is where Job has been all throughout the book that bears his name. He has been bleating like a sheep seeking comfort from the shepherd's staff and rod. And his only answer has been the silence of God. Job has been struggling for meaning in his suffering, and he wonders why God remains silent. For example, in Job chapter 30, verse 20, Job said to God, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Now, today, this week, we find ourselves in chapter 32 as we continue our study through the book of Job. In chapter 32, if you have a church Bible, it's on page 280. And for the first time in this book, since chapter 2, a new character is introduced. It's a young man named Elihu. And Elihu will take up this matter of God's alleged silence. The main point that Elihu wants to make is captured near the bottom of your outline. If you look at those last few points, he wants to make the point that God always speaks with words and with pain, not to accuse, but to deliver. Now, before we can get to that point and expand on it, we need to do a bit of work because Elihu and the playwright who composed this play of, that we call Job, they will build a case and we must follow the case. And so we're going to walk through three things here. You can see first, we're going to see why the stalemate infuriates. Hang on just a second. I'll explain the stalemate that I'm talking about. But second, we'll see how God's wisdom works. And once we get those two things, then we can understand what God's silence means. Let me pray for us in our time in the word, and then we'll begin to read it and discuss it. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together to worship you, to praise you. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would please help us to hear your voice both from the words that you speak and from the pain that you place in our lives. Help us to see you and hear you and to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
First, let me explain the stalemate where we find ourselves right now in the book of Job. It's described in verse 1 of chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Let me give you some background if you haven't been here. Job has lost everything in his life because of a bet between God and Satan up in heaven. And we, the readers of this play, we know what Job does not know, which is that God is not out to get Job, and God, in fact, has not been silent. Job is actually suffering not because God hates him, but because God trusts him deeply. And God drew Satan's attention to Job as the most righteous man on earth. There was no one like him. He was blameless and upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan took everything away from Job. And Job had three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, these three men who came to comfort him and to help him. And most of the book so far has consisted of debates between Job and these three men about why Job is suffering. We had 23 chapters of debates where the three friends say, you are suffering because you have sinned. And Job says, no, I haven't. And we saw last week in chapter 31 in Job's last major speech in the book where he considers God his adversary and he dares God to step in and do something because Job is confident that he will be right and God will be wrong. This is the stalemate that the playwright now comments on. Chapter 32 in this first paragraph, we we have the first narrative statements and the first evaluative statements that have been made in the book since chapter 2. And these first five verses of chapter 32 are crucial for us to understand this middle portion of the book. Let me read verses 1 through 5. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Elihu has never come up in the book before this. At this point, he will make four speeches, and then he will disappear from the play completely. And the reason why I say four speeches is, we notice these narrative markers, like in verse 6, Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, answered and said, Chapter 34, verse 1. Then Elihu answered and said. Those markers tell you that there's a new speech, a new section. That happens four times. And Elihu, this figure who comes on the scene mysteriously and then disappears just as mysteriously, he is a mysterious figure to readers of Job. And there is a lot of debate among godly interpreters as to whether Elihu is to be read as just like the other three friends, and therefore we are to reject his words, 
or whether a lie who is different from the other three friends and we are to accept his words. Now I want to take some time to help us understand Elihu up front for a few reasons. First, we have barely criticized Job at all through this sermon series. And Elihu will have a lot of criticism for Job. And so we have to understand that. We must know why. Also, these next six chapters where Elihu speaks, they won't make sense to us if we don't consider where he is coming from. If we misrepresent his perspective. Also, many good interpreters are seriously conflicted about how to read this character. So I want to take some time to understand him. So in these five verses, in this narrative section, we're clearly told three things. We are clearly told, first, that Elihu is raving mad. Second, I'm going to go back over these things. Second, we are told why he is so mad. And third, we are told why he didn't speak earlier while the other three were speaking. Okay, let's explain, let's undercover these things, uncover them, because these things are not told us by Elihu, they are told us by the playwright. They are spoke, written to us in evaluative statements that should be read as coming from the author of the play and thus as revealing some of his purposes in composing the play altogether. Okay, first, Elihu is raving mad in this short paragraph. It's repeated four times that Elihu burned with anger. He burned with anger. He burned with anger. He burned with anger. He's not just ticked off. Okay? He is furious. Why? Second thing. We are told why he is mad. Verse 2. He's mad at Job because Job justified himself rather than God. He is mad at Job because Job has not stuck with his original statement from chapter 1, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead, over the course of this book, that has become, God is silent, God is my enemy, God is my adversary, I dare him to bring evidence of wrongdoing and say it to my face, I would wear it like a badge of honor. I am right and God is wrong. And Elihu is not happy about that. But Elihu is also mad at the three friends. Verse 3, he's mad at the three friends because they could not answer Job. Although they declared him to be in the wrong, all they have done through the book so far is tell Job over and over again, Job, before you began suffering, you must have sinned. Before you began suffering, you must have sinned. They've given different angles on that argument. They've had different intensity of accusation, but it all boils down to the same declaration. Job, you are in the wrong. And Job has simply said over and over again, no, I'm not. You are wrong. No, I'm not. You are wrong. No, I am not. And they've had no answer. Now, third here, why hasn't Elihu spoken up sooner? Why didn't he speak while the three friends were speaking? Verse 4 tells us that it was because he waited because he was younger. He deferred to age. 
And therefore, he was deferring to presumed wisdom. He wanted to let the older men handle this difficult situation with Job. Perhaps he thought their experience was more likely to be well-received by Job. But verse 5, when they could not answer Job's refutation, he burned. My application of this point is going to focus on the head a bit, just how to think. Don't worry, as I move through the sermon in the next sections, I'll get more to heart and hands. But for now, we need to apply this by thinking about how do we read this section of Job. The point is this. From this introduction of Elihu and on into his speeches, the playwright wants to distance Elihu from the three friends. Though some interpreters suggest that Elihu makes the same case that the three are, I think such interpretations are misguided. Because Elihu is furious with the three. He does not agree with them. In fact, in chapter 32, verse 14, he says it straight out. He says, Job, he has not directed his words against me. In other words, Job's judgments, Job's criticism, Job's arguments, and Job's curses are against you three. They're not against me. And the second half of that verse, he says, I will not answer him with your speeches. In other words, he says to the three friends, I will not say the same thing that you three have said. I have something different to say. I think the chief struggle that that most people have with interpreting Elihu is the fact that in the end, Elihu reaches the same conclusion that the three reach. He states the same conclusion, and I'm happy to admit that. The conclusion is, Job has sinned. And because we hear him say Job has sinned, we think he's saying the same thing as the other three. But even though he has the same conclusion, we need to see that Elihu's arguments are completely different. The three have been arguing that before Job began suffering, he must have sinned. Elihu's argument is, since he began suffering, he has sinned. The three presumed Job's sin without any evidence, and Elihu will bring them, bring Job clear evidence. He will quote Job in detail and refute the actual statements that he has made in this book. The three spoke about God. Elihu claims to speak for God. Also, Job refuted the three and shut them down. He will never refute Elihu. He will remain silent as Elihu speaks. Elihu is not shut down. He does not get repetitive. When God criticizes the three in chapter 42, he never criticizes Elihu. And in fact, when God comes out to speak, he will make many of the exact same arguments that Elihu makes. Elihu and God both focus not on Job's life before suffering. They admit he was blameless and upright. Elihu and God both focus on Job's self-justifying words that he has spoken since he began suffering. There are numerous statements between Elihu and God that are word-for-word identical. For example, chapter 34, verse 35 Elihu says that Job speaks empty words without knowledge. It's the same thing God says in chapter 38, verse 2. To recap what I'm saying, 
The stalemate between Job and his three friends infuriates Elihu because Job is justifying himself and not God, and because the three friends have no good answer to Job's self-justification. Someone must say something about this deadlocked situation. God will soon enter it and speak very strongly. In fact, God will speak more strongly to Job than he does to anyone else, I think, in the entire Bible. Elihu prepares God's way by speaking on his behalf and warming Job up for what God is about to tell him. This is why the stalemate infuriates. Let's move on. Elihu's first point in this first speech is he wants to talk about how God's wisdom works. He first addresses in chapter 32 the three friends who had no answer for Job. To shut him up, they've constantly referred to their insight and their traditions. And Elihu comes to them and he now says, you think that your age and your experience makes you wise. But wisdom doesn't come from age. It comes from God's spirit. I have God's spirit within me. Therefore, I must speak wisdom. That's all he's saying. You think your age makes you wise. Age does not make you wise. God's spirit makes you wise. I have God's spirit. Therefore, I must speak wisdom. Listen to what he has to say. Chapter 32, starting at verse 6. And Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But... It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Elihu never apologizes for his age, but he's happy to defer and show respect. However... When the older men prove to be fools with little substance to speak of, he is constrained by God's spirit within him to speak God's truth. We've spoken of the main point of the whole book of Job before. The, the, the main point through this, the thread through this whole book is what does it look like to fear God when you suffer? 
And Job and the three friends debated a lot about what it means to fear God. They thought it means that you repent of the sin that must have caused the suffering. Job thinks it means holding fast to God through the suffering. And Elihu now demonstrates his own fear of God in this last verse. He says, else my maker would soon take me away. I can't flatter. I can't go with the flow of the arguments. I must speak when God's honor is at stake because I fear what God will do to me if I don't. And so he wants to show the three how to answer Job's self-justification. How does this apply to us? Friends, always remember how God's wisdom works. Don't ever discount someone because of their age. Wisdom comes not from age. It comes from God's spirit. Even the youngest children may utter a needed word of wisdom, like when my son, Beniah always asks me, well, not always, but more than once, he's asked me, Papa, why are you driving so fast? <laughs> wisdom, and, and the, the, the error here is, is not just about age, but it's about anything we use to measure wisdom wrongly. Don't discount someone because of their age or because of their status or because of their power or their education or their wealth. Wisdom might come from those who report to you at work. Wisdom might come from those with less education or less privilege. I've been reading a book called When Helping Hurts. It's about a, the biblical case for alleviating world poverty. And this is one of the few books I've read in my life that just shakes everything up that I thought I believed. You've read, read books like that before? This is one of them. They talk about one of the problems, one of the biggest problems of foreign aid from Western countries is that Westerners always assume that we know how to help people better than the people themselves know how to be helped. We think we know better. And so we come and do it our way. And this always proves disastrous for underprivileged societies as it builds cultures of dependence and all kinds of other things. The wisdom of God is not to do that. The wisdom of God is to hear what others have to say because the wisdom of God pays no attention to what we value most highly. But what we do is we compare what people say and think with the inspired words of God's Holy Spirit. And that is wisdom. For those of you here who are young or who are less privileged or less powerful, this includes the children and the teenagers and anyone else who's here who has anyone over you at any point. Don't be afraid to speak up. You may have God's wisdom if you are in line with God's spirit. Always speak with respect, but don't be afraid to speak up. This is how God's wisdom works. Let's move on to chapter 33. This is where Elihu turns to Job. And this is where we get to the matter of God's alleged silence. The playwright has already explained why Elihu is compelled to speak. Elihu himself has explained his compulsion in chapter 32, and now he goes on to speak to Job about God's silence. And at the beginning especially, he will repeat words like speech, words, mouth, tongue, declaring and answering. He's talking about speech. Job has wrestled with God's silence, and Elihu now helps him to interpret it. First, 
he claims, again, not to speak on his own authority, but by the Spirit of God. Chapter 33, verse 1. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks, my words declare the uprightness of my heart, and my lips know they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me, if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I, too, was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. His first stanza here, he he says, Job, you have no need to fear me. Let's both fear God. I'm just like you, but I will speak the life God has called me to speak. The Spirit of God made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. And he says, Job, answer me if you can. This is in contrast to the three for whom Job had lots of answers. And Job will have no answer for Elihu. But the point here is that God's Spirit speaks. And right now, God's Spirit According to Elihu, Elihu claims that God's spirit is speaking through him. Second, God is not silent. He now, Elihu now challenges Job outright, where he says, you are not right about God's silence. Starting at verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say... I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you. For God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Elihu begins by quoting things Job has said. You see, unlike the other three, he's not making unwarranted accusations. He is reflecting the facts of what Job has actually said. Verses 9 through 11, he quotes Job, where Job has said these things numerous times, where he believes that God is his enemy and that's why he is suffering. And then in chapter, verses 12 and 13, he makes a second challenge. And this is where Job has perceived that God is silent. He will answer none of man's words. And Elihu's answer in verse 14 is that God speaks in different ways. In fact, Elihu will give two examples. God speaks in at least two different ways, but we often don't perceive it. God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In other words, just because you think God is silent, that doesn't mean that he is. Let me prove the point. That's where he goes next, where he will show what he means. Sometimes God speaks with words. Verse 15, in a dream... He's talking about God speaking in one way or in two. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. 
that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So he says, yes, Job, sometimes God speaks with words. And this is what Job has been expecting all along, is for God to show up in a dream or a vision of the night, to come with his words, to answer Job's words, to speak with Job as a son of man would speak with his neighbor. He made that request in chapter 16, verse 21. And Job will get what he wishes for soon enough. But the time is not yet for God to show up and speak many, many words directly to Job. God has not done this yet, and Elihu argues that this doesn't mean that he hasn't been speaking because, though sometimes he speaks with words, other times he speaks to us through our pain. Verse 19, this is the second way God speaks. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food his flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death if there be for him an angel a mediator one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him and he is merciful to him and says deliver him from going down to the pit i have found a ransom let his flesh become fresh with youth let him return to the days of his youthful vigor then man prays to god and he accepts him he sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness he sings before men and says i sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me he has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light you see god speaks with words but he also speaks with pain. Job, God is not silent. He has spoken to you through your pain, and he is still speaking to you this very minute. And what is God saying? Verses 22 and 23. God is saying that as your suffering leads you near the pit of hell, just keep hoping for a mediator. You and Job has been on the right track with this. He has been desperate for a mediator between him and God. His suffering has led him to this point where he sees hell. He is almost there. And he says, I need someone else to rescue me and make me right with God. What else does God speak through your pain? Verse 24, he lets us know that we have been delivered and we are being delivered from the pit of hell. In other words, your pain, your suffering tells you that you are not yet in the pit of hell. There is hope for you of deliverance. Verse 25, God also speaks to you a renewal of life of refreshing, of reinstatement, of resurrection. All of these things are possible. In verses 27 and 28, God is speaking life to you so that you have something to tell the world about his glorious redemption. The point is that God speaks not only with words, but sometimes he speaks with pain. And we need to view our pain and our suffering differently. 
that it is not God out to get us, but it is God rescuing us and redeeming us and showing us what he has done for us. How does that work? This is the last point I want to make, letter D. God speaks not to accuse, but to deliver. Here's the point, friends. Your pain shows you that you are not yet being treated as you deserve. You are not yet in hell. And this pain, this suffering, whatever you go through in this life, it reminds you of what you truly deserve. And it sets you up for God's mighty deliverance. Because it's the people who have no pain in their life who really need to fear God's silence. Because he might be giving them everything they want. He might be abandoning them to their fleshly desires. And the end of that road is hell, full abandonment by God. Someone said, I don't know who, I've seen Randy Alcorn say this, I don't know if he was the first one, but someone said this, prosperity in this life is the closest non-Christians will ever get to heaven. And suffering in this life is the closest Christians will ever get to to hell. Even up in verses 17 and 18, Elihu says that God's purpose in speaking words is to deliver, to turn man aside from his pride and to rescue him from the pit. He wants to hold us back from what we deserve. God is always disciplining us for our good. He's teaching us who he is and who we are and what we deserve and what he's done for us. And Job has acknowledged his sin generally. He's blameless and upright, but he knows he's not perfect. He's already asked God to forgive him and pass over his sin so that he can be resurrected. Chapter 14, verse 17. Job doesn't deny that he's sinned, nor that he's a sinner. He just denies that there's a particular sin that has caused this suffering. And Elihu here reminds Job of his need for God's redemption. Because even though he's blameless... He's not perfect. Let's not miss this point. God is always speaking to you. Sometimes he speaks with words and sometimes he speaks with pain. His purpose in speaking to you is not to accuse you of wrong. His purpose is to deliver you. Look at the last stanza, verse 29. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. I imagine some stage directions here. Will Job answer? Will Job refute him? And there's a moment of silence. And Job has nothing to say about this. And so Elihu continues, If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. You see, Elihu doesn't even want to accuse Job of wrongdoing. In verse 32, I desire to justify you. But you can't be justified through your self-confidence, Job. 
You can't justify yourself. Let God justify you. You focus on justifying God. He dares Job to challenge him and prove him wrong, and Job can't do it. And Elihu's point here, if you think about it, partly it's disturbing. God wants to bring pain into my life so he can speak to me and show me who he is? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what Elihu is saying. But this should not disturb us because we say this same thing every week from up here. Every week we say that Jesus died for our sins so we can have life. We claim, we proclaim this word to you, that God doesn't always speak to us with words. He often speaks to us through pain. And often the way he does that is he speaks to us through Jesus' pain. Our God is a God who speaks, and he has spoken his final word through Jesus. Because through Jesus, God tells us of his love, of our sin, of our need to be rescued from God's justice. He tells us that the greatest suffering in the world brought about the greatest redemption. And when we suffer in our lives, our own suffering reminds us of what Christ went through as he suffered for us. And God speaks through our suffering and he says, you deserve so much worse than this. But I sent my son to deliver you from that. Don't forget. How does this apply? Two quick applications. First, when you suffer, how do you view God? When your life does not go well, do you consider God as your enemy out to get you? Do you think God is remaining silent, leaving you to wallow in your self-pity? Or do you see God as one who is drawing you closer to him through your pain? Is he speaking to you of his deliverance, even as you suffer? Especially when you suffer something you don't deserve. Do you take that hint to remember what you do deserve? When you suffer, how do you view God? Second application, remember what you deserve. You have not yet fallen into the pit of hell. Your suffering can always get worse if it turns you away from God. And if you don't love and trust Jesus, it will get a lot worse for you. I'm not here to tell you your life will be great. Either you will suffer now for a little while or you will suffer at the end forever. Wisdom recognizes this fact and praises God for his glorious, gracious, and lavish redemption through Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for Jesus. Who could have ever thought this up? That, Lord, you could rescue us by sending your son to become a man and to die in our place. Lord, please help us to see what you are about, what you are doing. Help us to honor you. Help us to hear you as you speak to us, both with words and with pain. Help us to remember that you are not silent. 
And we pray that you would make us to know wisdom through these things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.